Howdy folks, welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope you're doing well. Today I'm joined by Amanda Blake and we're going to talk about all things neuroscience and coaching. So in particular we'll talk about how can we surface implicit memories and embodied learnings in our clients and how do we help them overcome them. We'll talk about embodied cognition, we'll talk about memory reconsolidation. It's really a, a juicy conversation. So that all being said, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Amanda Blake. So Amanda, it's good to be with you again. Likewise, Joel. Always good to be with you. Yeah, let's see where we end up today. We're going to talk about all things uh, embodied transformation and, and the neuroscience of change. And uh, you know, just a heads up to listeners that you'll be teaching on the, the neuroscience of change. So um, yeah, we're going to talk about this topic Um so yeah, there's a lot of lot of different directions we could go in here, but I think I want to start quite, you know, let's let's kind of start quite broad, and then we can zoom in and expand on certain topics or concepts that you bring up. But um, what can let's let me start with this question: like, why is neuroscience important for coaching, and for how can it be applied in coaching? But why is neuroscience important for coaching? So I think one of the things that neuroscience offers us is um, a grounding in a framework that we, broadly speaking, in Western culture and in world culture, have a lot of trust in. And that framework is the biological medical model, right? And 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 part of the reason we ha- we place a lot of trust there is because we've gotten a lot better over the centuries at uh, helping people be physically well because of the kinds of research that supports that biological medical model. Now, there are a lot of ways at looking at being human and that, that biological medical model is just one among many. It's not the only successful one. And it's not the only one that can tell us something valuable about what it means to be human. But it's a widely accepted model that we understand and trust and that is in the sort of general language of our culture. I'm not talking about the specific technical details of neuroscience, but we tend to really trust science. And and right now we're all kind of fascinated about science, about the brain, because it's um, it's we have newer tools in the last, say, 25 years that help us understand the brain at a much greater level of detail than we've ever been able to understand before. So that's sort of like a general, well, we trust science, right? And then the more specific is um, when we understand from that perspective of what's going on sort of under the hood biologically in our bodies, we can, we can start to get actually really interesting insights into how that affects our emotions, our behavior, and our actions in the world. And um, it's not as though we're driven by our brains, but our neurobiology, so I rarely talk about the brain as though it sits in in a vat in your skull, right? Our brains extend and are distributed throughout our entire body. And we actually think all the way out to our fingers and toes. Literally, we think all the way out to our fingers and toes. And um, understanding that can help us understand different kinds of things about what it means to be human, about what it means to take action in the world, about how behaviors get um, 
uh, sort of embedded and embodied and habitual and put on autopilot. And for us as coaches, a lot of times when people come to us, they come to us with their struggles and the things they want to change in life. And very, very frequently, it's because they, they come because there's something happening in their life that's stuck or that's on autopilot or that's, you know, they can't quite see how to get beyond it. And so one of the things that neuroscience can help us understand is like, well, how do we get stuck and how can we help people get unstuck? Um, and so that's from the very broad to just sort of the more specific practical applications. Yeah. There's a few things you said there that I want to pick up on. Uh, one is you said like, literally we think all the way down to our fingers and toes. What do you mean by that? Well, so, um, uh, point to the future. I would invite listeners who are listening, just point to the future. Like, where is the future relative to you, Joel? Oh, I might point in front of me. You might point in front of you. In many cultures, what we'll do is we'll point in front of us. In some cultures, they'll actually point behind them because we can't see the future. It's coming, but we don't know what it holds, mm. right? So there's we have a physical way of relating with the world in in um and and we'll talk about like feeling close to someone or there's new distance in a relationship right? That's a, that's a kind of a physical metaphor that comes from our, uh, it's, it's more than just a metaphor, right? It comes from our physical experience of the world. We'll say, I feel warmly towards this person, or um, I, that person's a cold fish, right? And this shows up in our language in so many places. The person is spineless, right? There's just, and every, every language, every culture has these idioms, because the way we've learned through to move through the world, and I, I don't even want to say the way we've learned to move through the world, constitutive of the way we move through the world is our physicality. And so our bodies actually uh, help us understand the world around us and help us make sense of the world around us in ways that we are so, that we so infrequently uh, see or are aware of because it is it's hiding in plain sight it's completely woven into the fabric of everything we do right um yeah because i can imagine that this is quite a big idea yeah like this sense of uh the way we're embedded within our, our environment and how our environment shapes our biology and our um uh, the way we um situate ourselves and so um, I guess the question that comes up is, is like, um, I mean, I'm just going to go in blank a moment. Give me one sec. Um, what I want to ask is the, yeah, the old, this is what I was going to say, like the old, I guess what's the old, if we can contrast like the old way we might have held, uh, what learning and development is, you know, and, and who we are in a sense, like who, how we perceive ourselves to be compared to like what neuroscience is telling us who we are now and then how we can learn and grow, you know? So I'm kind of wanting to contrast maybe an old outdated model with, you know, this idea of like us being embedded and embodied all the way to our fingertips and toes in our environments. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a couple different things. One is for a long time, 
neuroscientists thought you reach a certain age, your brain doesn't really change very much. That's it. You're an adult and you're, you've kind of flatlined <laughs> um, in terms of learning and uh, in terms of not, not in terms of like learning new things, but in terms of growth development change, it's like, oh, your brain doesn't really change very much. That's a very old idea. It's not true in any way. Um, but a lot of people out there still imagine that to be true. Actually, we have massive neuroplasticity throughout our lives and um, you know, all, all the way to, um, you know, given the, the right kinds of treatment, um, and this is not an area of my specialty at all, but like stroke victims can relearn to use parts of their body that have been frozen or paralyzed by recruiting different parts of their brain. Um, or blindfolded subjects will learn to grope around by hearing by actually mapping sounds to the visual part of their brain. So the reason I'm sharing this is like, we actually have a great deal more neuroplasticity than was ever imagined, say 50 or hundred years ago. And, um, and that's good news because it means learning happens throughout life. Now, anyone who's been observing humans for a while actually knows that learning happens throughout life. Um, but especially in those places that we're most stuck, uh, I think this is where this gives us hope that like, oh, we can actually change some of those habits that have a grip on us, procrastination or um, uh, flying into a rage or um, really being, you know, uh, not taking action towards our health, right? Whatever it might be, depending on what kind of coaching you do. And um, your clients may be coming to you with different challenges. So knowing that the brain changes a great deal is in and of itself kind of a revolutionary finding, but not that new. What's more new, like if, if we look at the models of the brain that were developed sort of earlier on, let's let's say the, the, the 40s and 50s, not that that's the first time that people began looking at the brain, but, but we'll start there at sort of the birth of cognitive science. And um, oh, this fellow Herbert Simon was, was really interested in the brain and language and computers and uh, starting to get you know very, very early days of artificial intelligence. And the model for the brain was computational. What we do is we take in information, we make some calculations that results in certain kind of um, you know, very lightning fast sorts of decisions. And then we output some behavior, right? So there was this input computation output um, model or a representational model. There's a world out there physically separate from us. And we represent it inside our brains through our visual processes, hearing and so on. Um, by the way, we don't need to go here, but philosophers do not agree that there is a world out there separate from us, right? So this is actually really relevant to where we're going because that, that computational model was sort of like generation one and it lasted for quite a while. And then more recently, we've come into this kind of networked model, like, oh, the brain operates as kind of, it's not just doing computations, but it's connecting some parts of the body to other parts of the body. And it's doing more of this kind of like um, networked kind of thinking. Well, interesting, look at what's happened in the computer field, right? Like, oh, that's sort of more our model now, right? A little bit different from what computers were doing early on. And computer science and cognitive science have um, really matured and lockstep with each other. 
So one of the things that's going on now is uh, in the computer world is robotics and artificial intelligence. And when you're trying to program a robot to like uh, pick something up or to, to understand an emotion on a human face, that's an incredibly, incre these are like incredibly complex to try and program a machine to do the things that we do every single day automatically without thinking about it. And so one of the things that comes out of that, and, and it doesn't just come out of the computer science world, but um, one of the things that comes out of that sort of robotics world, coupled with what we're learning from neuroscience, coupled with what we know from, you know, sort of insights from long-standing observation of humans over thousands of years, so different philosophies, different wisdom traditions, is we start to see, oh, our thinking does actually happen all the way out to our fingers and toes. Uh, picking something up is pretty complex action. Recognizing a smile or a frown is a pretty complex action. It's hard to teach someone to do that, but we have the innate onboard embodied knowing of how to do that. And, um, and, and it's not just that we're embodied, right? But that we're embedded, as you pointed to, in a context, in an environment. Um, and that the actions we take kind of create the world that we live in. If you are pursuing the you know, health goals that you've set for yourself, or if you are not, that has implications for your future and the world that you live in and so on. So um, th this, this newer perspective on cognitive science sometimes called 4E cognitive science, sometimes just called uh, embodied or inactive co cognitive science. The four E's stand for embodied, inactive, embedded, and extended. And really what we're looking at is like, oh, we are beings situated in a world that we are co-creating as we think, move, act, and, um, you know, and, and, uh, well, we'll leave it at that. Think, move, act, because I can't think of another yeah. word. Well, right? And imagine as we organize, organize ourselves around what matters to us, you know, uh, so we're thinking and moving and acting in relationship to what we're perceiving and what matters to us. Yeah. So, um, and this is, this is, okay. So let's come back to like some really practical coaching questions here, right? I was going to ask like that. Yeah. What, how does this translate into um, how we can then look at helping our clients as well? Yeah. So, so let's say, um, uh, well, let's say you've got a client that comes to you. That's not very connected to what matters to them there. Um, I, I work mostly in leadership development, so I'm going to use business example. Um, somebody who comes in and, uh, is, has been promoted, but they're not sh sure really whether they want to be promoted. They're doing what they think they should be, whatever, like we're, you're supposed to sort of advance in your career, right? They're kind of asking themselves, like, do I want this job? Do I not want this job? And I, you know, so, so a client will come to us with some dilemma and we can sort of help them have the conversations with their boss and so forth. But if we don't help them connect to what matters to them, connect to vision, which by the way, is an embodied process when we connect to vision we're actually invoking something called the positive emotional attractor um my colleague richard boyatzis talks about this a lot right that that, that um there's there's sort of an embodied state when we invoke uh, a, a vision for ourselves or a desire that we really care about that supports learning and growth um and uh 
we could talk about the details of that if you want. And then, and then, but then when there's like, you're kind of, um, you know, do this, do that coaching for compliance, sort of very, very task oriented, and you haven't rooted it in what you care about, then um, change is much more difficult. And there's, you know, there's neurobiology that underlies that. So uh, the reason I say this is like, okay, so when we actually get our clients organized around a vision or what's important to them or what they care about and connected to that, and they feel that in themselves. It's not like an idea they have, but like, oh no, I can feel the care. I can feel the longing. I can feel the desire to move in this direction. It's genuine and it's true for me. Then they get this fuel to start to create and invent different worlds around themselves. They get into different conversations, right? So I'm thinking of a particular client who wasn't totally sure she wanted her promotion. We had a lot of conversations about what it meant to be a new mom and to be in a new big job. And um, ultimately she wound up deciding to take her career in a little bit of an unexpected direction or a, um, I don't know that it was unexpected, but a direction that was more deeply rooted in what she chose for herself and what mattered to her, as opposed to the direction that society would have said, which is like, keep running on this on this particular track that you're on professionally. Um, and so, yeah, let me just stop there and let you ask questions, Joel. Well, well, no, I think it's, um, I think it's good. Yeah. Just, I think it's good to, uh, continue with that example. And then I have questions about, yeah, I'll ask them in a moment, in a moment. Okay. 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 Good. So, so I guess what I would say about that is when we, um, when we tap into what we deeply care about, we're doing a couple of different things. One is we're invoking a parasympathetic state, which is our rest and digest system, which um, just supports a sense of relaxation. And we all know that just from our own personal experience, like if you trip over your, your teenager's skateboard in the morning and you haven't had your coffee yet and you woke up on the wrong side of the bed because you had a bad dream and you're more likely to snap if you're tense than if you're like, you know, oh boy, there, there it goes again. You know, how many times have I said to pick this up and you kind of are annoyed, but shrug it off, tell them to pick it up again or whatever. Right. So how we are, our state of being and how we bring ourselves to, to life makes a big difference in our responsiveness to the world and the actions that we take. And, and um, you know, somebody's really tapped in and, and connected to and oriented around what they care about, then um, they that actually when they're in their sort of rest and digest more relaxed uh, state when their default mode network or what's called the empathic network is switched on. Um, these are all things that happen when we tap into vision. And when we are connected to a compelling vision that really inspires us and motivates us, there's a felt sense that goes around uh, along with that. It might be a sense of settledness or a relaxation or a sense of excitement within that relaxation. But we make better decisions. We have different conversations. We treat our you know, son with the skateboard a little bit differently. And so what that means is that actually when we're in a different embodied state, we stand to create a different world, create a different future. We perceive situations differently. Oh, that I'm so angry at my child or I, oh, I love 
my annoying teenager, you know, <laughs> like um, both of those things can be true, right? But when we're in that more um, sort of relaxed, open state of being, it changes us relationally, it changes the actions we take, it changes the conversations we were in. And through that, we actually generate a different world, both through our perception, right? Like we see the world differently and through our actions. And both perception and action are physical embodied things that we do. I'm going to pause uh, there. Well, no, it's, it's great. And I, I, I really, um, so I just want to kind of get summarize it for myself. So in a sense, we're saying like our nervous systems, our neurobiology um, has evolved in order to uh, um, embody certain states, you know, like certain states can get activated with inside of us. And some of those are conducive to learning. Some of them are less so. I mean, I might be really oversimplifying things here, but um, that, you know, in those different states, then we are actually um, perceiving the world differently as well. So I can imagine it starts to create a sort of loop, you know, like a, a, an enhancing loop or a, a negative loop perhaps. But I guess, I guess uh, what I'm wondering is therefore like, then I can imagine as a coach, then we can learn to um, kind of, like leverage those systems, you know, to actually kind of like get on board with how they naturally work in, in order to help our clients then, you know, open themselves up to learning, to insight and to perceiving things in a different way that then can become embodied. Yes. So yes to everything you said with one specific refinement, yeah, um, which, which I may have uh, led us down this path. So um, we, we do enter sort of embodied states that are more open to learning, more conducive to learning, but some of those more tense or difficult, uh, embodied states also are incredibly conducive to learning. And anyone who mm -hmm. knows anything about how trauma works or, um, you know, the things that Brene Brown teaches about shame and shame as a, you know, as a teaching tool, um, how it both works and doesn't work. Right. So people will and bodies will learn how to shrink away from what's we'll pull our hand away from the hot stove every time, including if the hot stove is uh, if if I speak up at at home, I'm going to get shot down. So now I'm 45 years old and I don't speak up in meetings. Right, because I learned to pull my hand away from that hot stove a long time ago. And if somebody asked me to speak up in a meeting, my jaw gets tense, my eyes get tense, I get, you know, like a little flutter inside my chest, and my whole body's reacting to that hot stove of being asked to speak up. So, um, so any state can support learning. The question is, what do we learn, and is it and is it helping us get where we where we want to go? And by the way pulling your hand away from the hot stove or learning not to speak up when you're going to get shot down, like that's intelligent learning, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but because we're human beings and not trees, like we don't stay in the same environment our whole lives. So we go out into the world, we meet different people, we have different um, uh, experiences. We need to be incredibly adaptable. And this is why it's good that the brain continues learning, right? Because we need to be able to take something that we embodied uh, early in our lives and put on autopilot and, and be able to kind of un, uh, interrupt that, undo that. And, and 
and the fuel for interrupting or undoing or getting unstuck from um, some behavioral pattern that's standing in your way, some habit that's standing in your way, the fuel for doing that is connecting to something that you really care about. It could be another person. It could be something you want to create in your life. Um, it could be uh, a, a deeply held uh, vision for your community. It could be something that you just an experience, a way of being that you personally want to experience. It could be many things, right? But when you're tapped into that, then you can do the kind of learning that supports wh where you want to go in life. And you, and you, um, you know, learning's hard. It takes a lot of energy, uh, just sort of general energy and metabolic energy. And we really have to fuel our brains a lot to, to, to do that and to make that kind of change. And so, um, uh, we, we need to have the right degree and level of intrinsic motivation to really move in the direction of whatever it is we may be dreaming about. How would you, that example you gave of you know, the person who, uh, when they were little, you know, they were told not to speak up and then now they're in, they're grown up and they're in a meeting and the same thing is kicking in. Uh, how would you work with somebody like that? And, uh, you know, one of the things I keep hearing you talk about is em embodiment. We're talking uh, about kind of perception in a sense. I imagine that's a, a part of it, but yeah, what, what would you do with a client like that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So I'm always looking at how a client's entire way of being, including their embodiment. So it will also show up in their language as, you know, I asked before point to the future, like we'll always have some, some um, interpretive or linguistic or story-based uh, narrative around what we're up to in the world. Right. So I'm not only looking at the body, although that's where I've been most interested in, it's really specialized. Um, uh, so somebody, let's take somebody who's, who's not speaking up in meetings. The way that I generally work with a client like that, and it looks different ways and very specific for each individual client would be to have them start to recognize the full constellation of what happens when they don't speak up in a meeting. Right. So I said before, oh, maybe their jaw gets tight, their eyes get tight, there's a fluttering in their chest. But for another client, it might be I push my feet against the floor and I push my hands against my thighs and I just like my whole body gets gets tense. It's like I feel like I'm in a shell. Right. Or for another client, it might be I lean back and like every muscle in my body feels weak. Right. So it can show up very differently for each different client and helping the client discover like what is your um, full spectrum embodied and uh, narrative response to a situation. Oh, okay. So I lean back every body, every muscle in my body gets weak. And if I had to encapsulate what it really feels like when I, when I get asked to speak up, I just feel like I can't. Right. And that's sort of the story part or the narrative part. Now, typical coaching focuses on the narrative. I can't. Right. And let's instill some new beliefs. Um, and what are some beliefs? You know, let's find some ways for you to see yourself as capable here. All of that's really good. Please don't stop doing that. Right. Like that's that's good. And um, finding this whole constellation and then finding the places where the person feels like they can't. 
because when we feel like we can, generally, we don't lean back with all our muscles limp, right? Generally, there's some other embodiment that goes along with I can, or I'm capable here, or I've got this, right? Mm-hmm. So helping a client. So what I'll do is I'll help a client contrast their current state that's keeping them stuck, um, uh, body, emotion, and, and narrative, and then contrast that with like a more resourceful state that's relevant to them in that particular kind of situation that they can start to draw on. So, um, and then I usually have uh, suggest that they start practicing the very tangible physical things. Oh, so I can, oh, it turns out that I, I feel a little more like I awake in my muscles and I'm sitting up straight instead of leaning back. Right. Or, Oh, I'm no longer, when I feel like I can, my jaw isn't really tense. I never really noticed that before. Huh? What an interesting connection. Right. So then the easier thing to do in the middle of a meeting where you're being asked to speak up and you feel I I can't, it's much easier to relax your jaw or to sit in your chair a different way than it is to remember to change your thinking from I can't to I can, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually it's actually harder to do the, the more intangible stuff. But if you can go, oh, I'm going to relax my jaw. I'm going to sit up straight. I'm going to drop my shoulders. I'm going to, you know, where my feet are gripped to the floor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relax that a little bit. It doesn't have to be anything that anyone can see. But you inside know you're changing yourself in a very tangible way. That sends a signal to your whole system. Oh, Uh, all of a sudden, and this gets to the perception and action part that you were pointing to all of a sudden, if I relax my jaw or I sit up or I get my muscles a little more alive, it looks different to me. It looks more like I can, because when I think I can, this is literally the, as if we were putting on a pair of glasses, this is literally physically the lens that I'm looking through. I'm looking through the lens of sitting up straight with a relaxed jaw, right? And so we, we physically change our lens and that gives just a signal to the whole system to go like, oh no, I can't. And then we start to like perceive the world differently. We start to take action in the world differently. And it's crazy amazing how all these things are connected. And if you want to really nerd out on it, like the artificial intelligence people and robotics people and cognitive science people and neuroscience people are like, it's and consciousness researchers, right. Are really fascinated by this process of like, what happens when we make a tangible physical move and somehow it changes the whole constellation of our whole relationship with the environment around us. And suddenly new actions are possible. It feels much more workable as well. Much more practical. Like, like you said, and I'm just wondering uh is that you know inside of ourselves there when we're making those embodied shifts is that where we're kind of shifting out of um an activated state a a sympathetic state and is that i always get them mixed up when we're activating the parasympathetic nervous system or maybe again i'm oversimplifying uh things i know we have to be careful about that but i'm just wondering what's going on inside there yeah so right there it's actually not it's not that simple and it's a little harder to say. So sympathetic nervous system speeds us up. Sympathetic speed. It's the fight and flight response. It's the, um, 
but it's also the thing that allows us to play soccer. It's also the thing that allows us to speak up in meetings, right? We need our sympathetic nervous system. It gets a bad rap because most of us are like overactivated there. Um, but it's, we need that to get going. It's the accelerator. It speeds us up. And, and in order to be engaged in life and doing the tasks that we do, um, we rely on that all the time. So it's not the enemy. Um, most of us in sort of world culture today are, are, are pretty overactivated in um, sympathetic mode and underactivated in parasympathetic mode. So, so we tend to be like, oh, parasympathetic, it, it's the part that slows us down. That's the rest and digest, right? That's why well, I want more of that. Well, it's a little bit like if you've been driving a car and only turning to the left the whole time and the tires have gotten worn and right, eventually you're gonna be like, oh, turning right is the best thing. Like it's so much better than turning left. Right. But the truth is you need both of them and both the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system um, operate in situations of safety and in situations of danger. So, and I mean, perceived threat, right? So this person who I described who might like sit back limp in their chair and let all their muscles go loose and be like, I can't, that's actually an overactivation of the parasympathetic nervous system in response to something that's a perceived threat. Right. And so what that person needs is a little jolt of energy, um, a little connection to um, the accelerator that helps them get into action and go, oh, I can, right? So it's not quite so simple, but, but we don't want them to get into action in a like frenzied, frenetic fight or flight way, because that's- They're like, listen to me, right? <laughs> I gotta speak up. <laughs> exactly. And, that, and so that's- that might not result in the outcomes that they were looking for either, right? So we all know that sometimes we overcompensate and all of that happens, right? Um, but, but I think when we um, sort of broadly speaking, when we can move into action in a way that's sort of balanced and, and whole, um, where we're, um, uh, we're not overactivated or mm -hmm. underactivated, in any of our, uh, uh, I don't just want to refer to the nervous system, right? In any of our neurobiological systems, um, when we're in a more balanced state, that's where we're our most effective, right? That's where we're in flow. That's where we're, yeah. I, I find that uh, fascinating, this sense of, in a sense, we're like dehabituating ourselves you know, through awareness with a coach that can help us then notice. And I imagine, you know, when you're sitting across from a client, you could have them imagine being in that situation. And just through imagining it, it might bring up that embodied response. But then, you know, we're, we're um, through a, the role of awareness in a way. That's what fascinates me. I think that's maybe what you're saying before about consciousness studies and AI and stuff. It's like there's a kind of um, metabolizing force or something within awareness maybe even that's um oversimplistic you know it could be there's different several different kind of types of um alchemy taking place once awareness comes in and allows for something new to you know to emerge i don't know if that brings up a response or um it, it does it it kind of brings up two let me see if i can track them both um this is why <laughs> invariably uh, working 
with a client in an embodied way takes at least us as the practitioner and oftentimes the client themselves into, into deeper philosophical waters. Like, what are we all doing here? What is reality anyway? You know, to what degree can I actually influence what, what unfolds in my life? Is there such a thing as free will? Is there, right? We get very quickly into questions like that. Um, and, and it's because when we start to pay attention to, in a different way to our very direct in the moment experience of sensation and where our body is in space, it taps us into uh, awareness in a way that we're not very accustomed to paying attention in, in our everyday lives. So it brings us closer to what, what some traditions claim is the fabric of all reality. Awareness is the fabric of all reality. And if you, um, if, if you, whether or not you believe that to be true, when we get closer to sort of a deep awareness of what's happening right now in the present moment and paying attention to the body does that because you can't feel sensation at any other time, but right now, now is the only time actually that we can have any experience, but it's, it's sort of most obvious when you're paying attention to sensation, because you really can only feel it now. And then it's the sensation I had a moment ago, isn't present any longer. So, um, so we kind of get tapped into this, like, whether you think it's the fabric of all reality or not, something that is happening at a deeper level that's kind of ineffable, that doesn't really have, you can't really name it, it doesn't really have language, that it's like, oh, I'm paying attention to, sometimes I talk about paying attention to the life that lives in your body or that moves through or animates your body, right? And at the end of the day, we need to have some really deep humility about this. Like scientists don't know. We, we, we can appreciate science for many things, um, but there's so much that we, there's vastly more that science doesn't know than what it does. And one of the things that we don't know is what really is life and where does it come from? We don't actually know the answer to that question, but we know, oh, physically this body is animated by life and you know, there will be a day when I'm gone and this body will no longer be animated by life. And the, there will be a very palpable distinction between the living body and the dead body, right? So what is that? Like, this is the question of centuries. This is why philosophers are like, what is the soul? What is the, you know, so we can go so many directions with this, but I think, um, it's, it's when we tap into life by really paying attention to sort of our direct in the moment experience, all of a sudden it, it just opens up these deeper philosophical shores. So before you say anything, can I bring it back to the, to the practical then? Mm. Okay. So um, what I was going to say earlier is like when you're, when you're helping your client um, kind of discover what their experience is, one way is to do um, what you suggested, Joel, which is have them put themselves in the situation in their imagination. But it's actually really hard for us to imagine what we were sensing in that situation because it's not the present moment sensing. So two important 
tricks, if you will. One is to, is to put them in that, like, imagine yourself right now in the moment where you can't speak up. Okay. As you imagine that what's happening in your body right now in response to that imagined scenario, that will be closer most of the time to the way your body actually responds. than like, if you try and make up or imagine or, or generate like, Oh, this is how I think I responded last week when that happened. Right. So paying attention, like bringing someone into the imagined situation and paying attention to their sensation in the moment. That's a really good uh, trick to use. The other thing is just send your client out into their lives and have them observe and take notes and teach them some distinctions around sort of how to pay attention to where their body is in physical space or the internal sensations that are arising and help them get more skilled. This is something we do in the neuroscience of change is we kind of look at like, what, how do you actually help your clients um, find the right language and the right distinctions to, to use that will, that will help them get more skilled at looking at their interior experience. Right. And then when they get better at looking at that, they can go, wow, I noticed all this stuff when I was sitting there in the meeting, unable to speak up all this stuff that I never really noticed before. It was just going on in the background. And then once a client starts to notice that you have huge territory to move around, like, okay, well, what do we want to do with that noticing? How do we want to de develop and design some practices around I can so that you are more capable in that moment of, do of, of seeing the world differently and taking action differently? Mm. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Um, just, just to, I want to ask you about how then we can open up change. Uh, just to, just a comment i think yes you said like scientists need to be humble i also think spiritual practitioners need to be humble too because i think here. you know i think there's a really good um, there's a really good journey taking place when when the two communities are able to be humble because yes yeah, spiritual practitioners have perhaps fallen into making certain assumptions and cl claims about what reality is that actually are now being questioned by science. So I find that fascinating. And then there's these people like Bernardo Castrop who worked on the CERN Hadron Collider and, you know, is an AI um, uh, kind of world leading expert and um, a spiritual practitioner who I think believes in, I can't remember the name for it, but like consciousness is primary to consciousness uh, is i think what he would say is not just consciousness is primary but consciousness is all that exists it's the right. only thing that exists yeah yeah and there so, and there are yeah. people who who um uh make that claim and in fact if you look into that claim there's there's quite a bit of evidence for that claim there's not as much evidence for the claim that there are things that exist outside consciousness i mean i don't know about yeah. you joel have you ever experienced anything outside of consciousness well yeah how could you how could you answer that question could could you ever experience like <laughs> is it possible yeah. for anyone to ever experience something outside consciousness so the the answer to that is clearly no because the way we know the world is through consciousness it's our only way of it's our only way of knowing and yeah, so yeah. and so there are people who uh, take that evidence and not just individual scientists, but there's also long traditions and particularly the um, Advaita 
uh, non-dual tradition that was, yeah. you know, like many, many centuries of people looking into this, um, other mystical traditions in, in other um, religions as well that will this sort of then draw conclusions based on that evidence, right? Conclusions yeah. that might be very radical for the world that we live in where we kind of trust the neurobiology, as I said at the outset, like there's a reason we trust that. It's not the only way to, to understand yeah. the world. Yeah, that's but, a whole topic of conversation. Sorry, I didn't. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, maybe uh, I, I'd love to come back to then how we uh, then open up the possibility for change just to say if our clients, you know, either through uh, an imagination tapped into that embodied response or been out into their lives and kind of witnessed as it's happening, how they respond, you know, when they want to speak up. Um, so we could talk about that. And I, I want to just also bring in here this something you mentioned a while back, whereas you said, like, uh, I'll connect someone to the experience of uh, where they where they can't, but then also to the experience of where they can and maybe move back and forward. And are you talking there about, you know, memory reconsolidation, perhaps, um, how, you know, this is a whole topic of that I think coaches need to know about I just did a podcast with someone about that but I don't know where you stand with that these days and if that's what you're kind of leveraging there yeah that's exactly it and that's um uh, Bruce Ecker's a person that's brought that the most into psychology um the memory reconsolidation work and I think uh, it's really, really, it's really important and valuable work. So part of the premise is that the, the body learns through contrast, right? And it's true. If we have one experiential state and another experiential state, we can kind of, uh, we know in an embodied way, right? This is a kind of knowing. We know the difference between them. It's not the same as, um, uh, what John Varavaki would call propositional knowledge, right? It's not the same as uh, information that we might know. It's not the same as knowing two plus two is four. It's a kind of knowing that we know from our physical experience, right? And so that contrast is an incredibly important way of um, sort of surfacing a, a kind of knowing. And what memory reconsolidation does, and if you've had another podcast on this, I won't like repeat all the details. I'm sure you went into much greater detail, but across many species, again, mm. uh, let, me, let me go back one step, which is, you know, we used to think the brain didn't change. And then we were like, okay, well, the brain changes, but you can't really change like sort of old, hidden, buried emotional memories that are like, I'm pulling my hand away from that hot stove, right? I'm not going to speak up when someone asks me to. Um, you can't really change those because those are like, you know, really, really in there. Well, it turns out across many species, you can. And there's a very particular way of doing this that sort of opens, um, uh, opens up a window of learning by disrupting or interrupting the old learning, I need to pull my hand away from that hot stove. By the way, keep that one because you probably should pull your hand away from the hot stove, right? But the hot stove that was like, I shouldn't speak up. Oh, that one's not actually helping you in life anymore. It might've been really helpful at one time, right? Maybe in your twenties, you had a horrible boss who ripped your head off every time you spoke up. And you learned to pull your hand away from that hot stove. And now you're 45 and you're like, 
I don't speak up in meetings, right? Mm. So that's just who I am. That's just how it is for me. I just don't do that, right? So, so interrupting the, the whole self-constellation of that's just who I am. I don't speak up in meetings. Um, I don't speak up in meetings, right? We, interrupting that sort of um, way of holding yourself, way of being on all levels, right? So what does it feel like to, to not speak up in meetings where, you know, what's the emotion associated with that? What's the, I can't story associated with that and kind of what memory reconsolidation will do. And it's a very specific process of interrupting that held state and then relearning very rapidly a different way of being. I can, I can sit up, I can uh, shift my way of holding myself. I can relax my jaw, right? I can soften my eyes. And um, in that sense, we, we have sort of a much, uh, a much better shot at shaking up some of those memories where we might, those sort of embodied memories where we might pull our hand away from the hot stove in ways that no longer are actually helpful for us. Mm. Yeah, I, I just want to um, say that's, it's a, it's really coaches should know about this work. You first introduced me to that book, Unlocking the Emotional Brain. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a great book because it's actually very accessible. And I think there are, you know, it's likely that there's ways that you might be using it already in your coaching practice when it successfully works without knowing it. Yes. Uh, so I think it kind of like opens up that black box of like how and when transformation specifically works, like by contrasting the old learning with the new and, you know, just to, I think uh, you said it, but like the, the old idea that we'd have to like develop some new learning that outcompeted the old learning uh, but actually what, what they're saying in that book is, yeah, that you can actually erase the old learning. So um, it's a much more uh, like it's a relief for me because there's something yeah. very like efforting in the old way of like you have to maintain it and keep it up and then you might fall back. And so, yeah, um, that yeah. possibility, I probably don't emphasize that enough, but that possibility of um, actually erasing some of the the old learning so that. And, and this will happen sometimes with clients that I'm working with where they'll, they'll, um, and it has happened in my own life for sure on some of the most stuck things I haven't arrived there yet, but on some things I've been like, oh yeah, I just don't do that anymore. And I haven't for years and it doesn't occur to me to even do that thing anymore. Um, so Yeah. It's, it's funny that isn't it i have that too it's often you know you think there'd be some big epiphany of like ah you know i've made it ah, through the gate but then actually more likely it's like a few months later or weeks later you're like uh oh yeah I right just don't have that anymore that's interesting and i forgot about it too which is even weirder because it bugged the hell out of me for years you know well so that's the thing is actually that erasing of the old sort of um, what's called an implicit memory, which is kind of considered an, an, an emotional memory because it's stored in some of the parts of the brain that are more associated with um, processing and, and making sense of emotions, which is a whole other kind of philosophical question, but we won't go there right now. Um, uh, the, those old emotional memories can, can actually, um, we can actually 
let them go. And then we, we do forget about them. Like, wow, really? With, right. I used to be that way, but I just haven't thought about it in so long. I'd like to just come back. We're going to, as we move to the, the, the end of our conversation, just to pick up that idea again of like what you would do with a client when they'd come back with this information or you've, you've surfaced this information of their, you know, uh, habitual tendencies around speaking up. What, what would you do with them, you know, in that session and perhaps even over the longer term to help them embody a new way? Yeah. So I think that, um, uh, so if you look at memory reconsolidation, the, the idea is if you can open up the old memory, uh, by interrupting it in, in a relevant moment and then practice repeatedly, there's about a five hour window where you can practice the new, like the, I can repeatedly over that window. So there'll be two things. One is like helping the client find that in the session um, and find that contrast and be able to practice that in the session, but then also having the client practice that I can in their lives, in places where it doesn't matter. So that then when they're, when they find themselves in the old way of being, Oh, I just, all my muscles have gone slack and I'm leaning back their body remembers. So there's a little bit of a muscle memory around, oh, right, I'm going to sit up. I'm going to kind of bring a little energy into my muscles here. I'm going to, you know, make myself a little more alert and having them practice that in low stakes situations. And then right there, so so that it's accessible in the meeting, right? So that they remember, so that that memory, um, muscle memory kicks in. And then right there in the meeting, oh, do the thing, speak up, I can find yourself speaking up and that in the moment change, I often find for clients, once they've instituted it in their life one time, the learning is indelible. It doesn't mean that they'll be able to always enact it after that, but the learning is indelible. So they go, oh, right. I, I can, re- I remember that moment. I can more easily return to it. If the first time or two that they speak, speak up in the meeting right after that. So sometimes like you can direct clients to say, okay, when you notice yourself doing it right after that, practice a lot, this body position and language around, I can, this feeling of confidence or mood of uh, capability, right? Practice that state of being right in that five hour window, right after the first time you do it, or the second time you do it and do it a lot. And, and that will actually help the, the brain shift um, to start to erase those old hot stove memories, right? Of like, oh, what I do when I'm asked to speak up is go slack. Um, and and it'll, it'll start to overwrite those, to use a computer memory, overwrite those, those, um, uh, those memories with a new way of being. Mm, right. Yeah. And I get that it's like an embodied affair, like there's the awareness and I imagine compassion is an important piece of this as well, that uh, they're not just aggressively overwriting something, but uh, you know, there's a, a, a step of like, yeah, acknowledging and honoring the intelligence as you spoke about earlier in, in some of these old 
patterns, but then, um, you know, also compassionately choosing to, to practice this new way, which is embodied. Like there's a, um, a felt sense of it, but there's a, there's a change in, in, in body posture, but even you mentioned speaking or moving as well. So, you know, I, I can yeah, hear all of that in what you're saying. Yeah. I think that compassion piece is really important. And, um, just some kindness and gentleness with ourselves, remembering that by and large, for the most part, under the vast majority of circumstances, whatever we've embodied and put on autopilot, we did it for a good reason. And it was intelligent. The human organism, the human body is intelligent. Um, We can trust that. Now that doesn't mean that we don't learn the wrong thing sometimes, right? You can learn that the, uh, that the capital of France is Bordeaux. That's, I think, incorrect information, (laughs) Um, right? So you can learn wrong information. You can, you can, you can, um, uh, learn to pull your hand away from a hot stove that is not really a hot stove. Um, So that's actually something different from learning to pull your hand away from a hot stove that once was a hot stove, but no longer is hot, right? So so we can actually um, mislearn things. And and the good news is that our capacity for relearning is, is tremendous, much greater than we previously thought. But you cannot, I don't wanna say you can't. If you try to do that relearning, through language alone, through conversation alone, if you don't include the whole system that did the learning in the first place, um, then if you're successful, it's uh, luck. Mm. It's not, right? right? Like you got lucky. (laughs) Because you're like, I'm going to change this little 10% of the, the system and and uh, address this tiny part, which actually played a small role. It wasn't a decision to lean back and go slack about speaking up, right? That wasn't like a thought that we had or a decision we made. Um, it's just it's just the way that the whole self responded. So unless you include the whole self in the learning going forward, you're 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 probably um, missing a piece. I think this is really essential for coaches to know about. I know for my coaching it's been essential and it's been a game changer and it's totally changed um, the way I coach and, and it's made me much more effective. So. Um, I want to ask just before we end, like three very quick questions. So don't worry. They're, they're all super quick ones, but I thought um, one would be, could you just say like a few words about what you'll teach in the neuroscience of change? Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Do you want to ask the other two or uh, let's do I? them. I'll do them after. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, neuroscience of change. I'm really excited about it. I love this program. We've been doing it for a few years now. And, and, um, uh, mostly what I'm going to be talking about, um, is the role of embodied self-awareness in supporting change. So how do we actually, um, develop awareness in ourselves and thereby with our clients, um, of these kind of subtle signals that tell us, oops, hot stove there, right? Like, um, how, do, how do we actually uh, cultivate ways of knowing? And I mentioned earlier, oh, we'll go through some distinctions and some ways of 
describing or seeing one's own interior experience, interior embodied self-awareness. We'll also go deeper into the actual neurobiology than we have in this conversation. So we're going to be talking on a more technical level for people who like that kind of neuro geekery about this brain bit and that brain bit and, you know, kind of how all the systems work together and, and cover some, um, there are a lot of different models about the brain out there. So uh, I'm going to be teaching about, you know, what are some of the differences between those models where they intersect, um, kind of putting all the maps up on the wall and saying, look, here's Paris, here's Paris, here's Paris. It's the capital of France, no matter which map you're looking at. Right. Mm. That's great. That's great. And so then the second question is, uh, super quick, but I always love asking you this because you give me good answers. What's um, like a book or something you, that you that's inspired you over the last twelve months? Uh, that you know could, could be about coaching, but it doesn't have to be. It could be you know anything. Ah, uh, there's so many things, and the problem is I'm in Michigan, and the books that I'm reading right now are in California for complicated reasons. Um, what's a good one? You know, uh, just looking at my shelf, uh, someone was recently triggered by, by me sharing this. I don't triggered is a really strong word, uh, bothered, um, by me sharing this title, but I love the book, why I am not a Buddhist by Evan Thompson. Um, and, uh, it's not an argument against Buddhism. It's actually an argument against, uh, some of the bastardization of Buddhism that has, uh, it happened as American Buddhism has kind of gone mainstream and made inroads into organizations and mindfulness is everywhere, right? So it's a little bit of a critique of the um, uh, mainstreaming of, of uh, some of the mindfulness, which I, is great, right? Like, thank goodness we're doing that. Let's not stop doing that, but let's continue to do it in a much more uh, wise fashion so it's a pretty philosophical book um but i yeah. i really enjoyed it and, and evan david thompson chapman. is one of my favorite uh authors yeah. and thinkers i think uh david chapman is someone who referenced evan thompson and he's even <laughs> if you want a stronger critique of western buddhism he he does not uh hold back the punches <laughs> very <laughs> critical um and then the last question is just like where can we find out more about your work uh, sure. So the Embright website, embright.org, E-M-B-R-I-G-H-T, Embright, um, which is all about embodying your brilliance. So all of your intelligence and letting that shine into the world. Very nice. So, yeah, thanks. Um, I, again, I really enjoyed our conversation. I just want to say thanks, Amanda, so much. Thank you, Joel. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Absolutely. I always love talking to you and um, you have a tendency to bring me into the philosophical weeds and I'm glad <laughs> also that we, which I love. I think you and I both love that. And, um, uh, you know, we, I like that we uh, kept bringing it back to practice here too. So I hope we've offered something valuable for folks. Nice. Just want to end by wishing you well. And I'll see you again next time.